Impact, Income, and Influence. Welcome back to Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one show helping you reach millions online using your story. We're going to learn all about great entrepreneur journeys today. I have Annie with us. Annie has a master's degree in marketing research, but she also used that degree to found a site called Recipes, which helps people cook better, come up with great recipes. I love that stuff, right? We're going to get into that, but more importantly, we're going to talk about how you do marketing research. I think this is so important. I think it is one of the things that causes so many entrepreneurs to struggle so much. Andy, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on. No problem. It is my pleasure. So marketing research degree turned into recipes. Take us through that journey. How does that happen? Yeah, so I started in marketing and digital marketing back when I was like 20, 21 years old. Um, and I started off in marketing as a link builder for search engine optimization. And that for me just like opened my mind to what exists within the marketing world. And I was just fascinated how websites rank in Google. And that just, you know, as, as a consumer, you don't necessarily think about what goes into that. And so for me, that just, totally broadened my horizons, broadened my mind. And at the time I was getting my bachelor's degree in psychology. And so I finished that degree, but wanted to go more into business and into marketing and in sort of the why people do the things they do. And so that's where, you know, I got into marketing research specifically, which is way more helpful than you'd even expect or think when you're an entrepreneur or starting your own business. Okay. So you go through school, and you get out, what did you, what was like your dream job? Like when you were like, okay, I'm going to do marketing research. What did you want to get out and do when you got out? See, I got the wrong degree for what I was interested in. And I didn't, I didn't know. I wanted to know why do people in the C-suite, why do executives make really bad decisions that could have been informed by research, but they didn't bother to do the research. So like why on a whim does the CEO say, we're gonna open this, this new channel of business. Um, and so I didn't learn that. Instead, I learned how I as a business leader can make good data informed decisions that help save my business money, that helps save my business time, that helps my message resonate more with my audience and those sorts of things. Okay. Awesome. I mean, I think that's really, really cool because CEOs, I mean, I've, I've done some executive coaching. I've interviewed, I don't know, probably 50 of them by now uh, on this podcast. And it is interesting. Like they're the, the role of the CEO is to be the visionary and to see all the moving pieces and put the puzzle together in a way that makes the company profitable. Uh, but I think a lot of times they make ego-based decisions without and that can be good and bad, right? I mean, Lee Iacocca made great decisions at Chrysler for a while, and then he made a whole chain of horrible ones. Um, you look at any business, the CEO is the person guiding it. And if they have the research backing, they can definitely make some good decisions. So how does this lead then to you doing recipes? Yeah, so I uh, was working as director of marketing for like a household brand in 2019 to 2020. And I was commuting an hour and a half each way to this job. 
and COVID happened, my office shut down. And suddenly I had three hours a day that previously I had spent, you know, power walking to the train station and on a train crammed in like a sardine. And so I started cooking a lot more at home. Um, and so it was just my experience that it's very frustrating to cook from recipes online. You Google the best air fryer chicken recipe, you get to a food blog, you're bombarded with ads, you have to close out two pop-ups. And then, you know, there's 12 paragraphs of text before you get to an autoplay video before the instructions and the ingredients. And so finally, you've gotten to the instructions, you've gotten to the ingredients, you're tossing your raw chicken in olive oil and salt and pepper, and your screen goes blank because it's, you know, gone to sleep, it's timed out. And here I am, raw chicken fingers with olive oil. And how do you reaccess that information? So you, you know, rinse your hands, you get back, and then you have to scroll all the way through. So I was just really frustrated with that experience personally. And so I started exploring it. And that's sort of where the research comes in is I started talking to people on both sides of the equation. I talked to food bloggers and it turns out they're frustrated for a lot of different reasons around that experience too. And I talked to other people, home cooks, people who cook from online recipes. And you know, it's, it's a, anyone who's cooked from an online recipe knows that experience. So that was sort of the first step is you know, reaching out to other people who might be in your target market, reaching out to, you know, people on the other side of the equation to make sure that you're including different stakeholders to really identify, you know, what problem am I solving and how can I solve that problem? Well, that's, I mean, first off, your story resonates so well. The, I mean, you come from link building. So you understand like Google, the reason that all that's there, right? Cause I get super yep. frustrated by that too. I'm like, just give me the friggin' like, I need to know yeah. what goes in it so I can buy it and put it together. Right. Just give me the bare thing. But for those of you who don't understand how this works, they have all that extra text because that's what Google's looking for. They're looking for how many times does the keyword appear? Is it used in sentences? And it's all done by AI. So they're reading it to make sure that it's a high value, which gets the link higher up the search results, which then allows them to make more money from ads, right? I mean, the whole thing is yep. it's not there for free. It's there because they're making money through it. So you started doing research. What did you find and how did you decide to fix it? Like, this is really interesting yeah. because most people would have said, I want to be, a, I want to cook better from home and I'm going to spread recipes and make money. Like yeah. I'm going to, that's how they get to this. You came from it from a completely different angle. You saw the frustration, but then you started doing research. So what did you learn when you started doing it? So I started just really thinking about it, talking to people about the experience, but it wasn't until I actually saw a tweet by another company um, basically saying, Hey guys, we fixed food blogs. Here's our tool, which was a scraping tool where you can enter in the URL to a a recipe on a blog and it returns you with only the ingredients and the directions. That tool was shut down within 24 hours because it's essentially stealing the copyrighted materials of bloggers. You know, they put hours and hours into producing this content. They shoot custom photography for it. They buy ingredients, they pay for website hosting and it strips away all of their income. So you're only, you know, left with the piece that you want and they're left with nothing. 
And so there was so much backlash around that tool and that sort of the tone that they were going with. You don't have to deal with the life story of the blogger. You can just get, you know, the good stuff. And so that's sort of when I sort of explored more on the creator side of what issues are affecting the creators. Creators aren't happy with the situation either. You know, they they earn on the higher end, 20 to $30 per thousand people who visit their website. And, you know, that, that means they have to drive thousands and thousands and thousands of visitors to earn an income that for most people is not a full-time income. So they're side hustling too. Um, and so I, I really, what I learned most in talking to creators was about the, the tone and communication is that it's really condescending to say, I only want this, get your life story out of here. Um, and so that was huge in terms of what, how I'm going to talk about things in my marketing materials, on my blog, and how we can build better relationships between the food bloggers and the end users where the bloggers are treated with respect, their stories are honored, but at the same time, the content is formatted in an ad-free way that you know, meets the needs of people who are actually have sticky fingers and they're cooking the recipe. Nice. I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what makes every business work better, right? I mean, you look at Airbnb, you look at Uber, Uber is probably the best, like it made both sides better. It let the drivers yeah. make more money. It let the users get a better experience faster. You can do it through an app. Cars are usually cleaner. They're usually in better shape. Usually, usually, <laughs> right? I mean, we've all been in some bad Ubers, but if you guys have never had the pleasure of riding in a New York City taxi, that can be 10 times worse. So, okay. How then, my question is, you started doing the research. How did you come to a yes or no decision? Like, this is what I'm going to do or no, it's not worth it. Because you just laid out like side hustle as a recipe food blogger, let's just put that into context for people who are trying to do the math, right? Every If they make 20 bucks per thousand people, for 10,000 people, they're making $200. The average food blog probably gets 5,000, 15,000. What's... I mean, it just, you, there is no average food blogger because it there are a higher number of bloggers on the lower end. You try it for a year, you don't right. make that money. And so you fall off, but then there are food bloggers who are phenomenally, phenomenally successful who make, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a month. Right. They're the rarity though. Let's, let's yeah, go with like the 95%. Yeah. You're probably in the under a thousand dollars a month. So, and they're putting in, I mean, to write a food blog, to do custom photography, to go get the stuff and write it. You are correct. Like I wouldn't want to discount anyone's story, but when I'm hungry and I want to cook air fryer chicken, I don't want the life story. I want, and I definitely don't want, I get annoyed with videos that have longer than about a two second intro anymore yeah. on YouTube. <laughs> I'm like, get rid of all of that crap. Like I don't need to, there was one I watched the other day. I think it was 35 seconds of intro crap. I was like, I don't need any of that. Like, so how did you come up with a solve for this? Because I think your solve probably came through the research, I would think. Yeah. So we're creating basically a premium experience. Think about YouTube versus, you know, the paid version of YouTube. Think about, you know, watching free YouTube videos compared to having a Netflix subscription. 
So our business model is the same. We're doing a premium subscription on a monthly or annual basis. So users are paying to access unlimited of our content. And right now we've got access to about 6,000 recipes, um, but we've more than tripled our number of creators since we launched in November. So we are you know, expanding that library at sort of an exponential rate. And soon we will have any recipe you could possibly imagine. Instead of going and searching in Google, you can go to Recipe and search there and find something that's going to be formatted in a more user-friendly way. Um, and that's going to be, you know, it doesn't have ads, obviously. We do maintain the integrity of it. And so we keep that story or the tips and tricks, whatever the author is trying to share, we maintain the integrity of that because food is inherently cultural and historical and familial. And those stories are important, but we format it in a different way so that it comes after that vital information that you need. The ingredients, the directions go, you're paying for this premium experience maybe that content adds a lot of value to you. So you can choose to engage with it or not, but it's not, you know, forced. And it's SEO content is very, like you were mentioning, common in food blogs where, you know, someone has a recipe for air fryer chicken wings, their process is I've developed the recipe. Now I'm going to create a keyword informed outline that must be at least 1000 words and they copyright or hire a copywriter for the sake of SEO, to build this SEO content that strategically will get more eyeballs to their website. And sort of that's where the content, it's necessary because it's the only way you're going to get from Google to their content, but it's not adding value to the majority of the users. So we're just reformatting it so that that is all sort of bonus extra information. If it's helpful to you, you can read it, but it's not going to get in the way of cooking that recipe. Nice. So how are you taking care of the recipe creators? Because they're, so, go ahead. So we've actually been able to achieve um, payment payouts of an average of 70 cent per recipe view, um, which on an individual recipe view basis. But if you calculate, calculate that out to thousand per thousand views per thousand impressions, we're looking at about $700 RPM versus what we were talking about previously, where, you know, on the higher end bloggers tend to earn 20 to $30 per thousand views. So for one thing, we have successfully so far been able to pay out significantly more like, you know, more than 10 X per recipe view. Um, scalability obviously as a startup and a new business is an issue though, because you know if, if we're paying 10X per recipe view, but there's only 10 recipe views, that's still not a significant amount of money. And so we are taking care of creators in other ways. One thing we've done is we've launched a creator equity program, which is you know similar to like an employee options pool where our creators who contribute content over the period of our first year of business will have essentially what's similar to equity in it so that if in 10 years we are the Netflix of recipes online, we sell the company, then they also tangibly gain in the benefit because, you know, they our, our business relies on them. And so what we try to do is we try to actually treat them as if, you know, they are respected partners and we, you know, we need them. And so that's sort of the, the courtesy and the gratitude that we're extending to our creators. Hey, thanks for taking a moment to check out this episode of Grow Your Impact, Income, and Influence, the number one show helping you reach millions. 
Have you ever thought about building your own webinar or using public speaking to reach your ideal audience? Well, if you'd like my help with it, over the last several years, I have built more than 40 live events for clients just like you. In the last 18 months, I've helped 32 entrepreneurs build their webinar with over $5 million in cumulative sales. If you'd like to see how I can work with you, or if you'd be interested in having me speak at your event or be on your podcast, go to steven.coffee, that's S-T-E-V-E-N dot C-O-F-F-E-E, to book a short call with me and see how we can work together. All right, let's jump back to the episode. Awesome. So let me ask you, what was informing this? Thank you so much for sharing the story because I find it really fascinating that you put the research first. You kind of built the business based on like, I could, you could have done any business. You did it because you saw a need. What was the biggest thing, the biggest aha that you had in doing the research for this? What was something that shined like a big light bulb that you weren't expecting? Um, I guess just the, how, how much creators struggle to equally as much as users, because I've always been on the user side. I'm that frustrated user who doesn't want ads, who doesn't want to scroll, scroll through content. Um, but I, you know, I've interviewed creators. I've emailed back and forth with, you know, probably a hundred different food bloggers. I've run surveys to the food bloggers that I've been talking to in communication with. And the data is pretty amazing. In one of the surveys I ran, 73% of the creators that I had been talking to reported that they did not feel like they earned a fair wage or fair, fair revenue for the amount of work they were putting into their blog. And then beyond that, that 20, I can't do math, 27% of creators who do think they're earning a fair amount of money, they were significantly more likely to have revenue streams, including ads, uh, sponsorships, and affiliate links. And when you think about it, each of those things sort of deteriorate the user experience. If you have ads, that's one thing. If you have ads and affiliate links, and then it's a sponsored post too, each of these things make it a you know worse experience for users. And that's the only way that creators can earn an income that is fair for the amount of time they're putting in. So it was really eye-opening, you know, being able to take a look into the other perspective of I'm used to one side of the story, which is I'm sick of ads on recipes, but really seeing, you know, how creators feel and how they're treated because people do treat them with a lot of condescension and discarding, you know, some people, you know, put, put SEO content, but some people, you know, if you're looking up pad thai, they share the historical and cultural context of that dish, which is important to them. And so, you know, it feels to them sometimes like people are saying, you know, go, go back to the kitchen, you know, just make me a sandwich, which isn't a good feeling. So it was really getting a holistic perspective, not only of what the, you know, users, consumers experience, but on the other side, what work goes into producing this content. Got it. Okay, so I want to shift gears a little bit and I want to move into what your degrees in and actual like marketing mm-hmm. research. So if somebody is looking at starting a business, if they're getting started, coach, consultant, course creator, maybe they want to start a brick and mortar business. If they're thinking about starting a business, what do you think the first two or three steps should be that they start researching? What should they be looking at? Yeah, so you want to ask lots and lots of questions. And actually, one of the problems with 
market research and marketing research is that it's made to seem very inaccessible to entrepreneurs and to small businesses because if you you know go to a database you're trying to find your your target market size and you go to these databases it's like $5000 to access you know a report of market statistics or if you go to an agency it's going to cost $10000 a month or whatever it is it's very very expensive and there's sort of an elitist attitude of you know you have to do it scientifically with rigor and in these certain ways that only a few trained people like myself you know have that experience to do so understanding that you can access marketing research too as an entrepreneur and not being intimidated that's going to be huge starting by asking questions be, like have a curious mind and ask as many questions as you can both to your target user and to anyone else involved in the equation that's going to be important um and you can also utilize resources that you already have to do market research or marketing research if you have an email list already you've been doing a blog you have blog visitors if you have social media channels anything like that you can leverage those resources either reach out to people personally send a survey that kind of stuff and without having to pay money you know you can do marketing research with resources that you already have I mean that's awesome. I do think I mean I think when I got started I remember I can't remember what it, what site it was but yeah it was like $8,000 for some kind of market research and I was like, well, I can't do that. Yeah. Um but then I remember reading the 4-hour work week and he just went on Facebook. Um mm -hmm. actually at the time I think it was MySpace. That'll that'll like really yeah. date 4-hour work week, but like he went on social media and started asking questions. He went to groups and he found people. And I feel like that is like, you can't over rate doing the research because I've seen so many people. I mean, I've had people come to me with webinars that they spent hundreds of hours, like a hundred hours building out a great yeah. webinar for a product that nobody wanted. And they didn't know that beforehand. And it's like, if you just would have done spent five hours worth of research, it would have saved you. So the, I, I love the, everyone out there, right? Seth Godin, have a big why. Like you want to, you want to be really passionate about what you're doing, but you also have to do the research because otherwise you'll get into it a little bit and you won't have the income to support it because the market doesn't want it. Like you have to do both. So I think the other question that I have for you, which I would be really interested in, is how do you prevent confirmation bias in the marketing stuff that you get? Because I know so many people that said, well, I did marketing research. I went and asked people, and this is what I got back. Like I got this essay back that said, you know, they really wanted this widget. And it's like, when I read the research, I'm like, that's not what I get from it, but you were looking for it. So how do you prevent confirmation bias? So... To start, you can't entirely, you know, there are always going to be biases and, you know, the approach you're taking, you know, can influence the results that you get and your interpretation can impact. So my biggest piece of advice is to start with a plan and to define your marketing research plan before you ever do it. You write down, you know, what is your business objective in doing this research? What questions do you need to ask in order to figure that out? what type of data analysis do you want to do because you know if you just want averages if you want descriptive statistics or if you just want yes no answers 
you're going to be asking much different questions than if you want qualitative information or if you want to do, you know, t-tests and more advanced, you know, statistical modeling and that sort of thing. So you want to really understand what information you need to answer that business question. And then you build questions based on, you know, how do I reach that objective instead of, you know, going into an interview and saying, I'm going to wing it because then, you know, you're, you're leading the discussion in a way that may not be productive to those goals. Um, a few other things that are like specific call outs are leading questions. So, you know, you might be um, a pet, a pet, apparel supplier, you create dog jackets, you sell dog jackets. So you're asking, I'm doing marketing research. I'm asking my audience, do you love dogs with the option? Yes, or no, I'm a terrible person. Obviously, that's an exaggerated, you know, example. But that's the sort of thing you see in like Facebook polls, like where you're, you're leading them to the correct answer, which is obviously, yes, I love dogs, because I'm not a terrible person and would never want to admit that. But you know, there are much more subtle examples where companies do that, where they put that feeling of this is the wrong answer. And you can tell in the way they've worded it so that it's going to influence either only the people who, the, the people who respond are going to be only yes answers or the people who would normally answer no, you know, maybe they like cats a little bit more, but I'm influenced to mark yes instead, because I don't think I'm a terrible person. Um, and then there are like double barreled questions, which is another example. So say the question is, do you like dogs and why do they make you happy? That's two different questions jammed into one question. We've said, do you like dogs? Yes, I like dogs, but maybe they don't make me happy. Maybe they make me feel companionship. And so you're not able to, you know, parse the answers of, you know, which answer are they answering with their response? So those are just examples of, things you want to avoid so that you're not sort of steering your audience to give you the answer that you're looking for. That's, that's really good. I, I like that. And I like the way that it's laid out. So the thing that I could hear people saying is, well, how do I come up with the right questions? What are some sample questions that people should be asking? Like, I know that it's hard. I know that it is based on a lot of different variables. There are a lot of different spaces out there. But how do you come up with the good questions? Because you're you said, you know, take the time to come up with really good questions. What are good questions that they should be asking? Good questions. I mean, obviously, you want to look for these type of biases in your questions. So you can come up your, with your, you know, the questions that come to your mind, jot those down, write down to, you know, look at that question and say, what business goal does this question help me achieve? What am I asking about? What is the way I'm asking about it? Questions should be, um, what is the, the, the way to say it? Mutually exclusive and collectively exhaustive. Um, and so that means if you're asking, you know, how old are you? And the age ranges are, you know, 18 to 20, 20 to 24 and 25 to 99. That's a terrible, you know, set of age ranges in general. But then if someone is under the age of 18 and they're taking the survey, you won't even be able to know if you need to exclude their answer. If you're only looking for data from people over the age of 18, well, now either those people don't take the question or they lie on it. Um, and then, you know, if you're saying 18 to 20, 
20 to 24, what does a 20 year old respond in that case? Do they do the 18 to 20 or 20 to 24? So you need to look for things like that. Um, and, and, you know, maybe you're asking questions about shoes, right? So what, what shoes do you wear most often? And you have high heels or ballet flats or, you know, work boots. There's so many that you've left off on there that, you know, maybe people put high heels, but that's not their true answer. So you need to make sure that an answer covers every possible scenario. And that sometimes looks like putting a, you know, other category and they can fill it in. Um, but that just ensures that you get a little bit better data for, you know, that type of question. Got it. So the last question that I have for you is what is the biggest mistake that you see people do when they are doing research, when they actually take the time to do some research, where do they go off the rails? What's something they should avoid doing? Um, for me, I'm, you know, split in the middle because it drives me crazy that people are intimidated by market research. So people don't do it because they're afraid. And then on the complete opposite spectrum, they're the people who do it and think they're God. And so you have to understand your limitations. You have to understand that, you know, this is not scientific research. This can help you get answers that can help you make good decisions in your business. But, you know, you don't need to be publishing a research study on the survey of 30 people that you did. And that type of thing where, you know, people are like, I proved, I scientifically proved that all women wear high heels 24-7. You know, you're... <laughs> People talk about it with such authority when they've done, you know, they did a survey of 30 people, which is great. That helps you understand those 30 people, but it doesn't necessarily help you understand a different 30 people. So you have to understand that your results, your audience, you know, it, it can help in your business, but it's not necessarily automatically applicable to other situations. That's, I think that is really good to know. Well, with them, I guess two really quick follow-up questions that came out of that. The first one is, what is a minimum viable number? You said 30 people. I would think it would be higher. What do you think the minimum viable number for a market survey is? It depends. <laughs> and that's going to be the answer, you know, 99% of the time. There are statistical ways that you can calculate calculate the minimum sample size that you need for statistical validity. A lot of the time, you know, you're not using statistical methods that are, you know, gonna gonna make that necessary. Or, you know, the, the audience you have access to, your email list is only 100 people and the 100 people you send the survey to, only 20 of them respond. That doesn't mean that you can't use that data or that that data is bad. It just means that you can't throw a hundred, I mean, you can't make a million dollar yeah. decision off of that. That tells you, you know, I, I now have data to support this intuition that I had, or this assumption that I had, which in turn, then my next steps can be, you know, getting a greater data sample or, you know, testing it in different ways. You don't want to weigh a hundred percent of an enormous decision on a very small sample of data, but at the same time, you know, a lot of the time when you're a small business or an entrepreneur, you're just not going to be able to get thousands and thousands of survey responses that are, you know, randomized so that you can make assumptions and, and generalize that to a broader group. Got it. 
I mean, there, there's a lot that goes into it. I just, the one thing that I guess I've seen a couple people do that I would, I would call out here is they go to their friends and family and that's probably the worst place to get data. I would highly recommend going to a Facebook group where you don't know anybody because they're going to be honest with you. Um, go ahead. That's you look definitely, like you yeah, that's, that's definitely one thing is, is your sample telling you what they think you want to hear? That's a problem. Facebook groups can be helpful if you find the right audience. But again, you want the audience to closely match what you envision as your target market. So if you're selling high heel shoes, you know, you might pop a question in a women's form, women's evening wear group, women's cocktail attire group. Whereas, you know, going into the dog lovers group and talking about high heel shoes, you're not get, yeah. you might get responses. You, you probably won't gain any traction unless people start making fun of you because that's just how, you know, the Facebook algorithm works. But you know, if, if your target market is women who wear high heels in formal settings and you're surveying dog owners, those aren't going to overlap very well. And you won't be able to generalize the data that you have to your greater target market. Got it. Annie, thank you so much for sharing. Like, it's a pretty fascinating journey to see first, like how you built recipes and then like the kind of nuts and bolts of how it works. If people want to learn more about you, where should they go? Yeah. So if you're actually interested in recipe, like you're a home cook and it sounds cool, you want to try it out, just recipe.com, R-E-C-I-P-L-E.com. If you want to connect with me, if you have questions about marketing research, or you know you have a business idea and you want to know what questions to ask, anything like that, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn um, and I can send you a link so that we can include it in the show notes too if people want to connect with me directly. Awesome. So both of those will be linked in the show notes under this episode. Go check it out. And if you have questions, definitely reach out. You have somebody with a master's degree in marketing research willing to help you. Take the time, reach out to her on LinkedIn. Annie, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. No problem. It is my pleasure. And to everybody else out there, until next time, take action, change lives, and make money. We'll see you soon. Thanks for checking out today's show. Do you want the fast and easy Cliff Notes version of the actionable steps from today's episode? If so, go to actionbullets.com and download yours today. Also, if you're looking to start using story selling in your business and have stories do 90% of the hard work for you, grab my free course at storyselling.how today. Till next time, take action, change lives, and make money. We'll see you soon.